Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca, and I'm actually out on a hike right now on the Pacific Coast looking out at the ocean. One of my favorite things to do. And sometimes when I'm on a hike in the Bay Area and the fog clears, like on a day like today, and the light is just right, I can see this cluster of islands out in the distance. They're like these rocks sitting out there. And I've always wondered what it would be like to see them up close. Well, today on our show, we're gonna take you on an expedition to visit those islands, which are so sharp and rocky that back in the 1850s, sailors called them the devil's teeth. Today, they're known as the Farallon Islands. They get their name from the Spanish word for sea cliff, which is farallon. And you know, a lot of folks who've grown up in California like me, as well as tourists, have wondered about them but never seen them, in part because the boat ride to get out there is so notoriously stomach churning and I get seasick. But there is one member of our California Report team who was able to brave those rough waters with her recorder, and that's Izzy Bloom. She got up close with wildlife a lot of Californians have only ever imagined. It's Sunday morning, and I'm meeting Chris Biertemfull at the San Francisco Yacht Harbor. He's leading our tour group on an all-day expedition to the Farallones. It's completely wild and crazy out there. It's like you're on a different planet. Biertemfull is the California Programs Manager for the Oceanic Society, a nonprofit dedicated to ocean conservation. Oceanic Society was founded in 1969, um, and it was started by a group of mariners and sailors and people that were just concerned about the SF Bay and the area that they enjoyed so much. There are three groups of Farallon Islands, the North, Middle, and South. The Southeast Farallon Island is the largest and only one that's inhabited. Conservation scientists can stay for months at a time at the field research station there. But the island is off limits to everyone else, so we won't actually set foot on it. We board the boat a 56-foot vessel affectionately called the Salty Lady. And soon enough, we're cruising through the bay with the city at our backs and the Golden Gate Bridge looming large in front of us. We're still in the bay when suddenly... Whale! Whale! Right over here! Nine o'clock! Whale at nine o'clock! just got it. Right in front of that California sea lion. What a way to start the season. Right? Yeah. Not even past the bridge yet. 
<laughs> Whenever someone spots a whale, there's a wave of excitement that washes over the passengers. Everyone lurches and stumbles forward to one side of the boat to get a look. Seeing a whale is like winning a prize. In about 2016, we started getting humpback whales moving east of the Golden Gate Bridge and into the bay. Becca Lane is one of the naturalists from the Oceanic Society, who's here to tell us all about the marine mammals we're seeing. In 2019, we started getting these uh, gray whales coming in. But the vast majority of people who live in the Bay Area don't know that you could be motoring along in your recreational boat and whoo, spot a whale right there. Why is that a more recent thing? So what we're thinking as far as the gray whales is that they're just not getting enough food up north to last them the entire year to go back up to their northward breeding ground. So they are coming into the bay, and we do believe it's related to, you know, changing climate. We continue moving west, sailing directly under the Golden Gate Bridge and out of the bay. Then we make a stop at a cove just a little ways up the Marin coast to see some harbor seals. They usually like to kind of hang out on the rocks over here. <laughs> Looks like he's smiling. I know. They're, they're so cute. And they're a little bit more shy of people, a little bit more shy of boats compared to uh, like the California sea lions, which are kind of loud. We kind of compare harbor seals more to like cat-like versus California sea lions, which are more dog-like, you know, louder, more energetic. Oh, like their personalities? Yeah, their personalities, their personalities. As we continue on our way, the water gets choppier and the boat is rocking back and forth. I'm starting to regret not taking the Dramamine they told me to take to keep from getting nauseous. We head up past the Point Bonita Lighthouse in the Marin Headlands, past a yellow buoy covered in sea lions. And less than two hours later, we arrive at the Farallons. The boat slows to a stop in front of the 70-acre southeast Farallon Island. I'm taking it all in when Michael Pearson, a naturalist with the Oceanic Society, points out a section of the island called Lighthouse Hill. You can see the lighthouse all the way up on top. Below the lighthouse are steep, rocky cliffs. But you can't see much of the rocky face of the island because it's completely slathered with birds. Can you describe the smell right now? Um, okay, it's definitely very pungent, kind of like a cat box that hasn't been changed for a while uh, that maybe has some rotten fish in it as well. <laughs> Pearson says these birds coating the cliffside are common murs. They're slender, black and white birds, sometimes referred to as flying penguins because of their tuxedoed appearance. And he says they're common because last year during peak breeding season, there were around 250,000 common murs on the southeast Farallon Island. These murs, they pack in really tightly in the colonies where they're all just shoulder to shoulder, basically. Um, and they nest in the same exact location every single year. We cruise around the island, getting a better view of the field research station. And I'm delighted to see some sea lions swimming playfully after the boat. The belchy roar is coming from the stellar sea lion, where the barking is coming from the California sea lions. 
As I'm chatting with Pearson about the birds and seals, he suddenly spots a small black bird with a bright orange beak and blonde tufts on the back of its head. Straight ahead, tufted puffin! The tufted puffins return to the Farallons each year in April, after spending months at sea. The Farallons are the southernmost nesting colony for these tufted puffins, and so you'll get people coming from all over the place on these trips specifically to see these little tufted puffins. We continue our cruise around the island, then head back to San Francisco. On the way, we spot a few more whales. Whale next to us. We have a much bigger mother whale and a younger calf. Finally, at around 5 p.m., we make it back to the San Francisco Yacht Harbor. I'm covered in salt water and my legs are wobbly as we all gather around Lane, who recounts the species we saw today. Everything from humpback whales to elephant seals and tufted puffins. And countless harbor porpoises, five out of the six kinds of I asked Pearson what his favorite part of bringing people to the Farallons is. Um, getting to see kind of them experience it for the first time. Um, the Farallons are, you know, sometimes they're visible from the mainland, and so people know about them. It's this mysterious place that they've heard of but never been to. And so when they first get out here and they get to experience it for the first time, it's always kind of magical. If you want to see the Farallons for yourself, the Oceanic Society gives these trips every Saturday and Sunday from April to November. Just make sure you're better prepared than I was and take some Dramamine before you head out. For the California Report, I'm Izzy Bloom. head in another direction with this next story. And I want to just pause for a second and say, if you're listening with kids, you might want to tune in later without them to our podcast. Many of us are waiting to hear about the fate of abortion rights in this country, and that's prompted a number of people to come forward to share their stories. KQED's health correspondent Leslie McClurg brings us the story now of three women who all terminated pregnancies before Roe v. Wade made abortion legal back in 1973. For them, those memories can be especially painful. In 1963, Pearl Lipner spent a romantic weekend curled up in her apartment in Oakland with... An extremely exciting young man. She was 18 years old, and she was on the birth control pill. So she was shocked when she found out that she was pregnant. And then the potential father offered to pay for an abortion. I was not allowed to bring anybody with me. I had the address of a no-tell hotel in an extremely ugly part of the city. When she got there, she handed over $1,500 in cash, which is about the equivalent of $15,000 today. And then she entrusted herself to a guy that looked more like a boxer than a doctor. And he spent what seemed like hours cramming my uterus full of gauze. Gauze packing is this pretty dangerous technique that was used back then by unskilled abortion providers. When the procedure was done, the sweaty man called her a cab. 
And then she picked up some pills that caused her uterus to contract around the mound of gauze that was inside her. If something happened, I was not to go to the hospital because I'd be immediately arrested. 24 hours later, she was in excruciating pain alone. So she called a friend who didn't arrive for several more hours. And by that time, I had passed out on the floor and I was hemorrhaging. She was lying in a pool of blood on her apartment floor. The friend reached out to someone else who had been a medic in Vietnam. He brought over a bag of O-negative blood that he may have stolen. And transfused me on the floor and saved my life. Years later, Lipner intentionally got pregnant, but she miscarried at five months. She was told that her uterus was torn, potentially from a prior injury. I was able to get pregnant again. I spent the last approximately two months of my pregnancy on complete bed rest and delivered a wonderful, amazing child. She went on to work for Planned Parenthood and continues to fight for women's rights today. Women all across the country marched recently for abortion rights, chanting, our bodies, our choice. A few weeks ago in downtown San Diego, women packed seven city blocks. Deborah Bass carried a sign that read, end the war on women. God gave us body autonomy. He gave us a brain, okay? And we don't need somebody telling us what to do. This is personal for her. Because back in 1969, she desperately needed an abortion. She was a junior in college. I was very angry, and I felt very guilty. She told her mother, who then told a friend who had a legal workaround. I mean, legal in the sense that she had to lie to a psychiatrist. My job was to show that I was crazy and that I was going to kill myself if I didn't get an abortion. Her suicidal performance worked. The psychiatrist connected Bass to a doctor. And the next thing I remember is being wheeled down the hallway in the hospital, crying. Afterwards, she said she felt really alone and isolated. She basically stopped eating, and she put her career in healthcare on hold for a year. It was very emotionally damaging. I became depressed. Ten pretty rocky years later, she had two children with the same man, And along the way, she kept her abortion a secret until recently when she felt outraged reading the leaked Supreme Court opinion. It inspired her to tell her daughter for the first time what she went through back in 1969. Um, And I was just like totally stunned. I had no idea. Erin Bass is Deborah's 40-year-old daughter. The secrecy, the shame, the terror of being young and not even having that option was just kind of astounding. And I think that all hit me like in that moment at once. I was also shocked when my mom told me about her abortion. She opened the conversation by saying, you know, you might not be here today if I didn't have an abortion in 1968. It was a one-night stand. My mom, Jan McClurg, was 24 years old. We got to this cabin, and he built a big fire in the fireplace, and there was a big bare rug on the floor in front of the fireplace. I made dinner. A month later, she woke up feeling nauseous. And then the pregnancy test that she took in San Francisco at a doctor's office was positive. And I sat in the bathroom and I bawled. 
I just cried and cried because I thought, I, how can this be? And I can't be pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant. Then she remembered that she had met a doctor in Mexico City a few years prior on a business trip. The next day, she was on a flight to Mexico, and the man from her one-night stand went along. We walked down the street, and it was kind of a crummy area, neighborhood, but it was a regular clinic. After the alleged boyfriend paid the doctor 100 bucks, my mom was wheeled away to a surgery room. And the last thing that she remembers before going under was a doctor lifting her legs up into stirrups. And then she woke up, and a nurse was blotting some blood between her legs. Later that night, in a hotel room... There was just this gush of blood. I mean, I felt like I was hemorrhaging. It was a lot of blood. And I remember just being terrified. But abortion was illegal in Mexico City, so they didn't dare go to a hospital. Fortunately, by the morning, the bleeding had stopped, and my mom felt okay. They flew home separately, and my mom basically moved on with her life. You know, I go years and don't even think about it. And then when I do, I still get so emotional. Though she doesn't have any regrets. And there was no way on earth that I was prepared for motherhood. It, it was not meant to be. Luckily, she feels like the two children she eventually did have with my father were meant to be. For the California Report magazine, I'm Leslie McClurg. Even if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe, the kinds of stories you just heard are unlikely to be repeated here in California, at least, because our state leaders have committed to keeping abortion safe and legal. However, the National Abortion Federation estimates 85% of women will carry unwanted pregnancies to term if they live in states where abortion is banned. Marina Kraus, who's a fourth-generation Californian and who's well-known for her powerful voice singing the blues. She's got a new album out, all in Spanish, featuring the songs of Edie Gourmet. Marina Kraus is based in the Bay Area city of El Cerrito, and she's reimagined and reinterpreted Edie Gourmet's music with her new album, Canto de Mi Corazón. Marina, welcome to the California Report magazine. Thank you for having me. So this new album is a tribute to Edie Gourmet. Tell me about her and why you decided to honor her by doing an album focused on her songs. Her music and the music she did in Spanish with Los Trios Panchos was probably the most memorable music for me growing up. They were two albums that my grandmother played continuously at every 
event, at every holiday, and that we're just part of every memory I have as a kid in her house. Siempre fuiste la razón de mi existir Adorarte para mí fue religión Y en tus besos encontraba el calor que me brindaba El amor y la pasión And these songs still take me back to that place of when I was a little kid. And um, we moved around a lot. I, I often went to a different school every year of my life until about high school. But every time I came home to my grandmother's house or my great-grandmother's house, that was the anchor for me, the only sense of real home I felt. It sounds like part of what made you feel grounded was your grandma playing music. Paint a picture for me of what it was like to listen to music at her house. I'm assuming she played records, right? And did she have like a big old turntable? Yeah, she had records and, you know, she had one of these big stereos that looked like a 1960s TV console, but was like a big piece of furniture and you would lift up the heavy top and put the records on in there and then the speakers were on each side. You know, just like we studied cereal boxes, we would look at the, at the, at the album and read the names and go over the lyrics and look at the pictures. And, and I didn't really understand the words because I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. Spanish was all around me, but I didn't speak Spanish. And so for me, it was this sort of, I don't know, magical thing. <laughs> and, uh, and the music was so beautiful. And it and made my grandmother really happy. La última noche que pasé contigo, quisiera olvidarla, pero no he podido. La última noche que pasé contigo, hoy quiero olvidarla por mi bien. You know, I was I was born in the late '60s, and people now value being bilingual. But at that time and before that, it, it was not necessarily valued. For me, it was always a source of frustration, and I felt embarrassed, you know, uh, growing up that I didn't speak Spanish because people would look at me and assume that I spoke Spanish. And when I didn't, you know, I'd get a mix of reactions. Sometimes people would say, oh, come on, you really do. What are you ashamed of? And I would say, I, I don't, actually. <laughs> and then I would feel ashamed of that. And so it was always... a. Uh, a difficult thing to navigate. So you didn't actually grow up speaking Spanish as a kid, but you went on to study Spanish. And in fact, you became a professor of Spanish. You teach it at Diablo Valley College in, in Pleasant Hill. So tell me how music came into your life and how you got to the point where you're not only a professor, but you're recording albums. I didn't grow up studying music. I always loved music, but um, probably because we moved around a lot and we were poor, it was not really something I did, but I studied singing sort of at the end of high school. And uh, I studied classical music and I, th I thought I was gonna be maybe an opera singer. 
And I was really into it, and I had to give it up because I was living on my own, and it's very expensive to have, you know, a teacher and do lessons and all those things. And I wasn't quite sure that it was for me. Uh, the music I loved, but the whole career thing, I, I wasn't sure. You know, fast forward about 25 years uh, during the time I decided to go back to school. Um, I did, you know, try to go to college a few times and dropped out and came back. And it's part of why I became a community college professor, because I I think community college is an incredible place and um, for, you know, new beginnings and second chances and sometimes third chances. I had been grading in a cafe and I had seen this little booklet from the jazz school in Berkeley. Looked through the classes and sort of fantasized about taking them and I thought, I'm just going to do it. So what's it like for you to sing in Spanish? How does that feel? It feels incredible, actually. I'm just getting goosebumps when you ask me that question. Um, it's really, it's wild because I, I feel like, you know, I heard these songs all my life and I used to sort of phonetically sing along, but I didn't really understand what they were talking about. But after spending all these years studying Spanish and teaching literature and poetry and really, you know, sinking into words. It just feels, it just sounds very cliche, it just feels like home, you know. Well, Edie Gourmet, was kind of the original crossover artist of this music because she actually was not a Latina. She was born to Sephardic Jews. Her parents were Turkish, but of Spanish descent. So she spoke Ladino, which is kind of derived from Spanish. What do you think it means for a Chicana to reinterpret her work? To me, this music belongs to a lot of us, not just Chicanos, but Latinos growing up. But for me... This project is really personal, and, you know, singing Spanish is really a thing that I never thought I would be able to do. And I, I wish my grandmother could hear them. What do you think she'd say? I think she would just cry. <laughs> I think she would just cry. She loved hearing me sing. Marina Kraus, thanks so much for sharing your album with us and the songs of Edie Gourmet. Do you have a favorite song you want us to go out on? Piel de Canela is one of my favorite songs because, first of all, the lyrics are just so gorgeous. And it's about brown skin and the beauty of brown skin. And and the, the Montuno in the middle where it's, you know, who matters to me? You do, you do, you do. Marina Kraus, her new album is called Canto de Mi Corazón.
And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director, and our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Amy Mayer, Vanessa Rancaño, and Izzy Bloom. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks again for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.